Well, good morning. <laughs> I love driving through the mountains. We don't have that in Florida. So thanks for that. That was super cool. Very convenient. Uh, yeah, that'll work. Standing off to the side this morning, and I was just, the scripture always comes to mind. I always meditate on something in the word of the Lord. And, and uh, Jeremiah 5.1 came to mind this morning as I was standing worshiping. Just felt like that was for you today. And in Jeremiah uh, chapter 5, verse 1, God comes to Jeremiah, and he says a very unique thing for a guy in an old covenant situation. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to run through the streets of the city of Jerusalem, and I want you to find one person, says one man, who loves justice and is seeking truth, and if you can find that one person, I'll pardon the entire region. Now, under a new covenant, you and I know that truth is a person. It's the person of Jesus. And ultimately, what God is saying, if you look at it from a new covenant perspective, is look through the streets of the city, and if you can find one person hungry for my presence, truth isn't an idea, concept, or a philosophy. It's the person of Jesus Christ. The righteous judge ultimately says, if you can find just one person who has a value for my presence, who has an appetite and a hunger for me, I'll actually release grace over this entire area. Right? That's under the old covenant. I'm not even preaching yet here, okay? Just, that's, this is for you guys today. That's under the old covenant. If God could tell one prophet, find one hungry person in a city that was absolutely given over for wickedness, if you can find one person hungry for my presence and I'll give grace to it, under a new covenant, how much grace could be released upon this region because of the fire of God in this room? Your hunger for God might matter more than you think. <laughs> if your body is the temple, your heart is the altar. You're the priest of this house. Let's keep the fire burning on the altar for the things of God. To maintain an appetite for God is what, what really true discipleship is all about. Jesus never told us to make converts. He told us to make disciples. And a disciple is somebody who says yes to Jesus today and gets up tomorrow and does it again and again and again and keeps saying yes for all of eternity. You just Your, your yes is so big that it, your no never even has time to squeak out. And here's the deal. A, a, a disciple takes time to be created in form. Because you can believe, be a believer in Jesus this morning. You never believed in Jesus before. You've never given your life to Christ. You can do that this morning and say yes to Jesus and begin a journey with God right now. Totally possible to do. You can be a believer in Jesus in a moment by faith. But can I promise you this? You will not be a disciple in a moment by faith. I don't care how much faith you have, you will not be a disciple overnight. Right now, in a world that's filled with disillusionment, in a world that's filled with deconstruction, I think there are people out there who, I mean, they're freaking out because the idol of their certainty has been toppled. We didn't make certainty an idol. Sure we did. <laughs> we set up... We set up ourselves in such a way that we could see five and ten years into the future. We made plans. And then suddenly, there went our plans. All of our certainty was gone, and we went, ah! 
It's interesting because this is how we make certainty an idol. When our certainty becomes an idol is when it gets in the way of you saying yes to Jesus. In other words, Jesus interrupted all of your plans and all of your certainty. You'd be like, no, that's not Jesus. That's the devil. He certainly wouldn't interrupt my plans. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> I'm not saying don't make a plan. We make a plan so we know what we might do. All right? <laughs> Charles Finney said that you can tell when revival is hitting a nation when the majority of the body of Christ actually is in a position of being able to say yes to Jesus. Well, here we are. <laughs> when our certainty goes down, God can interrupt anything, and we're like, yeah, I got nothing better to do. <laughs> Don't think of this as a challenging time. We're getting exactly what we prayed for. You got to know this. In my lifetime, there have been two huge prayers of the church. One, God, get us out of the walls. The church has got to get out of the walls. And God, we need strong families. That means we, we need fathers and mothers that spend time with their kids. Boom, COVID hits. We were forced out of the walls and we had to stay home with our kids. What did the church do? We got to get back to the walls. <laughs> like, my kids are driving me nuts. We got to get out of here. What? <laughs> I got a revelation for you. We, sometimes we don't actually want what we say we want. I'm not saying God didn't do COVID to us. He doesn't do that. Not what he did. But he's not going to waste it either. He's super good at redeeming everything the devil ever throws at you. I got so much I want to share this morning. I probably should start. Oh, man. Okay, okay, okay. I got, a, I got a bunch of amazing people here, and I don't know what we're going to do with them. I just might unleash them on you later. And, and, uh, and, and, and the cool thing, listen, the cool thing about, I, I love bringing the team with me. It's just super fun. And these folks from Bethel are here and, and Portland and, and a dear brother of mine, Henry Cole from, uh, uh, from Orlando uh, with me. Henry's a former PGA pro, so if your golf swing's a little rough, he'll lay hands on you and impart something to you there. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if that's possible, but, you know, anything's possible. So, anyhow, I just literally saw a couple of guys in the room light up and go, oh, that I'm interested in. <laughs> All this Jesus talk, that's eh, okay. But my golf swing, yeah, I'm on. So, um, anyway, so Henry will be back at a table of resources at the end. And let me just briefly mention some of these. My wife, Tracy, and I uh, celebrated 30 years of marriage last year. We got married when we were like 12. So... Um, <laughs> literally we got married we got married so young when the minister said you may kiss the bride I was like gross that's not true <laughs> it's so oh my goodness I hope she's not watching online um, oh my phone just went off yeah she's watching online so hi uh Love you, miss you, see you tomorrow. Okay, uh, Tracy and I met w when we were five years old. And uh, uh, my parents were evangelists, missionary evangelists. They belonged to the holiness movement, which in the holiness movement, we only lack two things, holiness and movement. Otherwise, <laughs> had it all covered. And, uh, 
Tracy's parents, on the other hand, uh, they were our next door neighbors in a super hippie trailer park in Austin, Texas. And Tracy's mom was a belly dancer, not ballet, belly dancer. And uh, this is how I met my wife. Uh, her mom was dancing with a sword on her head in the trailer. Yeah, skills, right? And she bumped into something, sword fell off, stabbed her in the leg, blood's going everywhere. Little five-year-old Tracy runs next door to the new neighbors. Me, I'm only five, and I peek around the corner when she knocks on the door. And my mom answers the door, and this is the first words I ever hear my future wife say. Can you come and help us? My mama stabbed herself with a sword. <laughs> I was so traumatized I had to marry her. No choice. So, so after 30 years of marriage, we wrote a book called The Four People You Marry. Uh, the four people you marry are, you ready? The person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they actually are at this moment in their journey, and the person that they are becoming. Problems will arise in a marriage when you fall in love with maybe one or two out of the four. Uh-huh. And the other ones, when they show up, can make you feel like, oh my goodness, I did not sign up for this. Yeah. And so it's a, really a book on how to transform from glory to glory together without growing apart. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Every person's life's a book. Don't judge the book by the chapter you walked in on. Your involvement in their life is to help them write a glorious conclusion to what may have been a pretty rough story, right? Amen. So that's back there. Um, Heidi, can you help me a second? I got a, I got a, a bunch of these USB thumb drives. Let me just mention super quick. Uh, this is a 24-hour teaching on identity. God told the prophet Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you, which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So what did you know? What he knows, what he's always known about you, that's the truth of who you are. And you have one assignment in this life, and that is to find out what God believes about you and has always believed about you and agree with that. Okay? 24 hours of that. Prophetically give that away to somebody in the room and then come on back. Um, this, one's, uh, this one's an eight-hour, or it's, actually this one's 11-hour teaching on the book of Daniel. I'm going to talk about this a little bit this morning, so I won't go into that this morning. This one's called Walking in the Presence and the Power of the Holy Spirit. It's 12 hours of teaching on spiritual joy fair. I said joy fair, not warfare, joy fair. You have way more fun, get way more done. Demons hate joy. That's all 12 hours in three words. There you go. Give that away. That's fun. Uh, this one's called Beyond the Veil. This is a, an eight-hour study of the new, uh, new Covenant perspective on the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle was kind of laid out like a body where you started at the feet and you moved to the head. And as you move from the feet to the head, you begin to realize in worship, this is exactly what the tabernacle is all about teaching us. In worship, what we do is we actually are invited into a deeper relationship of intimacy with God where we find ourselves in a place where we share his thoughts. You want to know what God's thinking? Worship for a while and see what happens. Give that one away. This one, oh, this one's nuts. This is a... a, a, a I think, 10 or 12-hour teaching on the book of Revelation. It's called Restoring Revelation. It's a book of Revelation from a new covenant perspective, and it will make Revelation the happiest book you've ever read. I promise you, Revelation's not a, not a fearful book at all. Do you know how many beasts are in the book of Revelation? There's a lot of beasts, actually. There's more than one. 
and he's been in the Bible before. You know, the word antichrist doesn't even appear in the book of Revelation. And the word anti and antichrist doesn't mean opposed to, it means instead of. The antichrist spirit isn't even opposed to Jesus. It just takes Jesus and sets him aside to focus on something else for a while, which is why you find the antichrist spirit in church so often. John said there's a lot of antichrists in the world. They've already gone out. I promise you, you've met some. Maybe you've even been one. Who knows? Um, anyway, restoring revelation, that's crazy fun. And give the Daniel one away too. Thanks, Heidi. And, uh, oh, one more thing. One more thing. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. All right. Got your Bibles, go to Daniel. I want you to, uh, to find yourself somewhere in Daniel chapter, let's say, get to chapter 9. Give me a few minutes to get there. And um, uh, okay, thanks. <clears throat> I, uh, every now and then I get a word that I think is personal to me. Most of the words I get are personal for me, that I get in the secret place with God. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think probably 95% of the stuff that I feel like I hear from the Lord in just that secret place of time with the Lord, probably the stuff I'll never share publicly. It's kind of like you, you don't talk about most of what you talk about with your wife, right? Why? Because you're in covenant with her. And when you're in covenant with God and you spend time with the Lord and he realizes, I believe, knows that he can trust you with the secrets of his heart, he'll start revealing things to you that'll freak you out in a good way. Uh, you know, this revelation comes from the fact that not everything you, you ever get from God is supposed to be put on Facebook, okay? <laughs> a lot of stuff that you get from God is meant to be held close, right? And when God sees he can trust you with his secrets, he'll start revealing more and more and more to you. Then there are words that come out that, that I know that are words for my house, for Tracy and I, for our family. And then there are words I know that are for perhaps my, my I would say, my community of people. We call that a church, my uh, a company of people that, that we gather with and we worship with on a regular basis. There are words that come out for a specific church that I go to every now and then. I'll step into a church and I'll get a download from the Lord and feel like this is what needs to be released in this house. Then there are words that I feel like are national or global. And this is one of those words right now. And it's a response to a question that I asked of God. How do we navigate out of this season? This last season with COVID, with politics, and all of the junk that we've gone through that's upended the church, how do we navigate out of this season in power and in purity propelling the gospel forward? Uh, we are in a new reformation, by the way. I don't know if you realize that or not. The church, since the cross, every five centuries cycles through a brand new reformation. It's, it's like a big rummage sale where everything we think we believe and everything we think we know gets thrown out on the lawn. And we get to choose what goes and what stays. And here's the way that reformations work. If we lay hold of what we have created that wasn't originated by the Spirit of God, we institutionalize, memorialize the move of God, and we end up dying. We camp around and make a museum of past moves of God this way. But if we let go of everything, of our tradition, and lay hold of what is of God alone. We are positioned and poised to move into the next generation and actually carry revival farther than it's ever gone before. Well, the last big reformation that we had, prior to the one that we're walking in right now, was in 1517. Martin Luther uh, uh, launched or sparked 
fire of reformation in Wittenberg, Germany in, Mar in uh, October of uh, 1517. I felt super strong that I was supposed to be in Wittenberg on the anniversary of that day. So I had three friends with me that day, and uh, we were in Wittenberg, midnight's coming, and the goal was to go to the church where where Luther preached his messages, and to stand in that church and actually pray, to go to the door where supposedly nailed the 95 Theses and do that whole thing, to stand there and to pray, and just to hear from God for the next season. So we're standing in Luther's church, it's midnight, and the crazy part is they had it wide open. The city was packed for the Reformation celebration the next day. But at midnight on Reformation Day, I thought we're going to be like, we're going to have to like weave through the crowd. This could be like a major move of God happening in this room. I walk in and there's an empty building and a German caretaker. And I go, where, where is everybody? And he's like, I have no idea. We opened it up here at midnight because we honestly thought that there would be a lot of people here. Well, there weren't. There's four of us. Dear friend of mine uh, crawled up into Luther's pulpit. And uh, there's a little barricade there, but, you know, <laughs> crawled over the barricade, crawls up into Luther's pulpit, stands there, puts his hands out, and start pr starts praying in the Holy Spirit. We're walking around the room, stand in the center, we all gather, and I felt the Lord say, midnight on Reformation Day, I felt the Lord say, there's a new Reformation beginning, what took 100 years in the last one is only going to take 10 in this one. And by the end of this Reformation, the entire body of Christ will look very different. Hang on. And I thought, well, how could change come that quick? Well, here we are. We're about halfway through. And the body of Christ has already undergone a radical, radical transformation. But we don't move in the body of Christ from drama to drama. We move from glory to glory. Right? Can I just tell you, the kingdom of God is never under threat. It's never been threatened before, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the news says. The kingdom of God has never been threatened. It's not being threatened now, and it never will be threatened. Why? Because it can't be shaken. And you are already seated in heavenly places in that kingdom. Whatever is happening here on this earth shouldn't shake you. Why? Because we live in an unshakable kingdom. And when you move, live, move, and have your being operating from an unshakable kingdom, even though you're living in this world, it doesn't matter what's going on around you, you have the capacity to shift the atmosphere because the kingdom within you is stronger than the kingdom around you. Let me say it like this. The value that you carry for the kingdom of God within you, when that value outweighs, let's say you're walking into a store, a business, your place of work, whatever, when the value that you carry for the kingdom of God within you outweighs the sin, the blindness in people's hearts, wherever you go, you will shift the atmosphere just because somebody made in the image of God who knows what they carry has walked in the room. There's no pride in that. You didn't do it. You didn't anoint yourself. You didn't even create yourself. We're all here by the will of another. None of us signed up for this. You ever looked in the, in the mirror and gone, who are you and why are you here? Welcome. We've all done it. <laughs> I don't know who I am apart from seeing him. 
As I behold him, I get a vision, a revelation that his identity becomes my inheritance. And now as he is, so am I in this world. I don't, need, I don't even know how to be human if I don't see Jesus. I don't know how to make decisions if I don't have the Holy Spirit literally shaping and guiding, moving me by the wind of his presence. The amazing thing is he doesn't force any of this stuff. He just invites you into a lifestyle where you just step into going one moment to moment going, Holy Spirit, are we good? What are we doing? Pretty soon you begin to learn his ways and how he moves. The fact that he moves with radical compassion, a, a, a reckless amount of grace that actually makes, makes a lot of religious people super uncomfortable. And as you live and move and have your being walking in that radical compassion, the power of God starts flowing through you. And pretty soon, this is, this is how your shadow heals. Because when you walk aware of what you carry, the fragrance of what you carry is picked up by people who have need, like a hungry person who's just passed the bakery and smells bread. Your spirit is always on, looking for the answer, the questions that we haven't yet figured out. All right, Daniel, I got to get there. So I ask God, Give me something for this, this, this generation for right now. And uh, God drew me to Daniel. And I thought when I went to Daniel, it was because of the reason that everybody goes to Daniel. And that is to find all the end time teachings. Last day stuff. Right? Everybody's all, all into that. And then I didn't get that when I went to Daniel this time. But I started watching Daniel's life and I felt the Lord say, there are five things that Daniel learned that every new covenant believer has got to learn. The entire body of Christ has got to get this. Because what Daniel did is he learned how to live in the kingdom of Babylon without compromising the kingdom of God. And positioned an entire nation to walk out of bondage and into freedom. Right? So we're going to talk a little bit about what Daniel did. The first thing I want you to notice about Daniel is his origin is kind, of, is kind of tough. I mean, Daniel is a young man in Israel at a time when a guy named Nebuchadnezzar down the road, a king who's crazier than a bag of cats, decides he wants to have a bigger kingdom. And he's not going to do this by destroying his neighbors. No, he's going to take his neighbors, the Israelites, and he's going to take them back to Babylon and turn them into Babylonians. That's how he's going to grow his kingdom. And Daniel is caught up in the middle of this. Nebuchadnezzar does unthinkable stuff. He comes in and takes the temple of God that had been standing for 800 years, and he sets the thing on fire, destroys it, tears it all down, but he takes all the gold back to his house to party. This is not a good guy. And then he takes the best of the young men of Israel and he takes them into his house and now he's going to strip them away from their identity and so much more. But he strips away their name. He takes Daniel's name, he honors God, and he gives him the name Belteshazzar, which honors a demonic idol. And now Daniel has lost his city, he's lost his family, he's lost his name, he's lost his identity, he's lost his place of worship. Daniel is, is a stranger in a strange land, and now he's thrown in to the mix of a bunch of occultic, demonically influenced people who have this appetite for supernatural power. Daniel's part of this company of people. And so here, you've you got to look at Daniel and go, Daniel, are you eventually going to protest anything? 
he doesn't stage a protest when the temple's being burning down, as far as we can tell. When Israel's being carted off, he doesn't post about it online and, 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 and talk about how horrible this is. It is horrible, but that's not Daniel's thing. Daniel is literally watching everything go down, and it seems like he's going along with it. But don't make the mistake of believing that Daniel's a pacifist. He's not. Daniel doesn't seem to protest the taking away of his name. Daniel doesn't seem to protest the stripping of his identity. But Daniel does have a backbone. One day, he does stand up against the king when the king offers him a stake. The Bible says that Daniel got offered food from the king's table, and Daniel's like, no, 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 today we're going to do vegetables and water. That's all we're going to do. And I'm like, I'm looking at Daniel's life up until now thinking, Daniel has like zero backbone. He should have been like leading massive marches and protests against all of this. Maybe he just doesn't have it in him. But then one day, when the king offers him the best food in the land, he goes, no. What? Now you protest when it doesn't matter? What Daniel was doing is Daniel was learning how to hear the voice of the Lord. He was discovering a truth that all of us need to figure out, and that is that there are a lot of hills out there you can die on, but you're not called to die on all of them. You've got to find what God's called you to do. As a minister, my email inbox is flooded every single day with amazing, good, godly causes that require 100% of my attention because they are the most important thing that has ever been. But when I say yes to one, I say no to everything else. And the crazy part is, pretty soon, you can start going, man, there are so many hills to die on, and I've only got one life. Which one do I choose? God, what do I do? Do I die on that hill? Do I fight on that hill? And you might actually hear God say, no. Shocking. What God is teaching us we live following his voice and not every person's invitation to the anointing on their life. Somebody gets a call of God on their life to do something, next thing you know, they want to bring everybody else into their call. And they wonder why people around them are burning out. It's because the one that got the call got the grace to fulfill the call. So if you've ever had somebody like put an issue in front of you that requires all your time, attention, energy, finance, all of you and says, listen, if you truly are a Christian, you're going to follow this and you're going to do this and you're going to fight on this hill with me. And at the same time, you're sitting there going, that sounds good. And that's certainly a kingdom, that's a kingdom value. But then you hear the Holy Spirit say, no, maybe now today you know why. Because that's not a hill you have been called to die on. Doesn't mean they're not called, just means you're not. Okay. So follow the voice of the Lord. And this is the first thing Daniel does. He lives without compromise to the word of the Lord. He will give a hard word to a king, the number one guy in the nation. And he doesn't mind. But this leads into the second thing that Daniel does. As Daniel is giving words that are difficult, living without compromise to the word of the Lord, Daniel doesn't seem to delight in delivering hard words. As a matter of fact, when he delivers these hard words, he does it with phrases like this. O king, live forever. Word to God, this word were for those who hate you and not for you. And you're looking at Daniel going, what are you doing? 
that's a completely political party you're talking to there. It's a different political party. It's totally different. You didn't even vote for that guy. And you're treating him with kindness. What are you doing there? Second thing Daniel did is Daniel developed a supernatural compassion for wicked leaders. Supernatural compassion. He felt the heart of God for people who were actually wicked. And he walked without compromise to the word of the Lord, but releasing compassion in everything he spoke. King Darius, you guys remember that guy? King Darius issues a decree. Daniel gets caught up in the technicality of the law, suddenly finds out that he's breaking the decree. And next thing you know, King Darius, who likes Daniel, is forced to throw him into the den of lions. We all remember this story from Sunday school. The next morning... King Darius runs to the lion's den, and he peeks in and goes, Oh, Daniel, was your God able to deliver you? Daniel answers back, Oh, king, live forever. My God has shut the lion's mouth. I'm like, Daniel, bro, you're a better man than I am, because I'd have been like, I don't know, why don't you come down here and find out? Because... <laughs> You threw me in a den of hungry lions, man. We are not friends anymore. This was a deal breaker on our relationship. <laughs> Daniel has this authentic compassion for wicked kings. Listen, not just wicked kings, just wicked people in general. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And he calls all of his wise men and magicians together. And he goes, hey, I had a dream. I want you guys to interpret the dream. And they go, okay, tell us the dream. And he goes, no, I'm going to see if you guys are the real deal. You tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. How many of you know that's advanced prophetic ministry right there, right? <laughs> and the, the wise men all go, hey, nobody can do that. And he's like, fine, you're all dead. Not fired, dead. Well, Daniel is caught up in this. And he's like, man, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not letting this happen. I've been born for such a time as this. I'm here for a reason. I'm going to God. So he goes to God. God gives him the, the interpretation and the dream. But before Daniel goes to the king, he goes to his boss. And he says to his boss, whatever you do, don't kill anybody. Don't kill them. Whose life is he fighting for? The magicians and the wise men. Sorcerers, demonically inspired people that were literally satanic in their worship. What is Daniel doing? He's literally fighting for their life. What? It would have been so much more convenient to just let the king take those guys out. And then he has no competition, right? Just remove all the wicked people. That's not what Daniel does. He fights for their life. How many of you know that when you save somebody's life, and you did so because you heard from God, and the people whose life you saved actually have a hunger for spiritual power. How many of you know they like walk away from everything they thought they knew and they go, I want to know what you know. How do you know what you know? Who do you know? Who is this God you serve? What does Daniel get out of that deal? He gets disciples. A lot. As a matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 10, when he has his final vision, he's actually got a bunch of people with him. And when the angel shows up, they all run away screaming like little kids. They're like, ah! And Daniel's standing there trembling, and he's alone in the presence of the Lord. Daniel's now got followers, students, disciples, 
who want to know how he knows what he knows. So the first thing Daniel does is he lives with no compromise toward the word of the Lord. Second thing Daniel does is he walks in radical compassion toward wicked people. Daniel is an Old Testament example of somebody who even before Christ, the cross, and the resurrection learned how to love his enemies. Something that 2,000 years into the new covenant, we're still struggling to figure out. third thing Daniel did, and we're going to find this in Daniel chapter 9. You can follow along with me here. Daniel chapter 9 <clears throat> documents how Daniel actually found Jeremiah's words and starts to read what Jeremiah wrote. You say, did he not know what Jeremiah said before? He may not have, because Jeremiah didn't get a whole lot of respect in Israel during his day. Jeremiah and Daniel are contemporaries. Matter of fact, uh, Bible scholars will say that they're between 30 and 50 years apart in age. And Jeremiah, throughout his entire book, he's, he's, he's prophesying, Babylon's going to come in, take you captive. This is going to last for 70 years, you guys. And, and, and Jeremiah writes all this. He prophesies all this. But keep in mind, social media is not around. Things go out by the word of the Lord. And, and, and then they go through people, through word of mouth. If people didn't like what they heard, they just didn't repeat it. So it's a pretty good chance that Daniel probably hadn't heard what Jeremiah said. Fascinating, though, if, if you, and it's just rabbit trail here for a second, if you've ever been curious about what happened to Jeremiah, Jeremiah was smart enough to know that the word was from God, so he didn't go to Babylon. Before the Babylonian captivity happened, he fled with a remnant of people to Egypt. Nobody really knows 100% what happened to Jeremiah, but legend has it that Jeremiah went down there and he gave a prophetic word over snakes and crocodiles because they were killing a lot of people and they stopped killing people. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah one day, he gave a prophetic word over some people that didn't like what he said and they stoned him to death and his followers buried him in a grave. You say, how do we know any of this is true? Because records show that when somebody did get bit by a viper from that point on, they would go to Jeremiah's tomb, and they would take dust off the tomb, sprinkle it on the snake bite, and it would be healed. So Jeremiah, in his death, even had power to heal the sick, which is fascinating. This was such a, a strong legend that Alexander the Great came to Jeremiah's tomb, and he dug Jeremiah up and took him back to Alexandria, where nobody knows where he went from that point on. So it was strong enough of a story for Alexander the Great to take it seriously enough to dig his body up. That's kind of a big deal. Jeremiah lived long after he died. Well, Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees something fascinating. He sees a word of judgment, and the word of judgment they're living in right now. And so he realizes this 70-year thing is happening. We are actually in the middle of something that God has both allowed and orchestrated, which is interesting. Now, you would think that if you're in the middle of God moving and you're like, oh, we got 70 years, I guess we got to ride this out, that you would just go, well, whatever, can't really do anything about it. But Jeremiah decides, and he's got a relationship with God, he's cultivated a relationship with God, he's going to push back a little bit. He's not going to push back on the will of God, but he is going to make a petition. In Jeremiah chapter 9 down in verse 19, this is what he says. He prays a long prayer, and he gets to the end, and he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. Now think about this. They're in the middle of the will of God. 
And yet, Jeremiah goes, sorry, Daniel, thank you. Oh, I love that you're listening. That makes me so happy. (laughs) Daniel goes, Daniel is sitting there and he goes, he goes, Lord, hear us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, do something now. You understand that God is looking for people who will actually engage with him in conversation like this. God comes to Moses one day, and the children of Israel out there in the wilderness murmuring, complaining. God comes to Moses and says, stand back, Moses. I'm wiping everybody out. Your your children here, your people that you brought out of Egypt. And Moses goes, okay, time out. They're not my people. They are your people. I didn't bring them out of Egypt. You did. And if you wipe them out, what are the surrounding nations going to say? Their God can't save them? And God goes, yeah, you're right. What's he doing? He's provoking something in the heart of people. He's provoking a supernatural compassion. And now here you have Daniel, and he sees they're in the middle of the will of God. They're under judgment, and even under judgment, what happens? Daniel cries out and goes, here, forgive, do something now. He says, in verse 20, he says, I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. He doesn't leave himself out. And I was presenting my supplication before the Lord. Everybody say the word supplication. Supplication. It's an interesting word. Not a word we use every day in conversation. It means to ask for grace when you don't deserve it. To supplicate. In other words, you're throwing yourself on the mercy of the court. I'm asking for grace, and I don't deserve it. And he's asking for grace, not just for himself, but for his nation. This is important. Ready? While he's still speaking in prayer, verse 21, Daniel chapter 9. Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me. He said, oh, Daniel, I've come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, your command was issued, or this command was issued. So I want you to see what happened here. Here's what moved the hand of God, that in the middle of a time of prophesied judgment, somebody dared to ask God to release a grace over them that they didn't deserve. And God pulls the trigger on it and says, Gabriel, go down and give him clarity, wisdom, insight, and understanding. When you ask for grace, God will often shift circumstances and pour out grace upon you in in a way that changes the circumstances. Sometimes when you ask for grace in the middle of confusion, God will do what he did with Daniel, and he'll give you wisdom, insight, and understanding. In other words, now you won't be walking by confusion anymore. You'll know exactly what's going on. This is the third thing Daniel does. He asks God for grace for himself and for his nation. It's illegal for you to ask God grace for a nation under judgment. Even if you perceive, let's just take it down to somebody in your life, even if you perceive somebody is walking under judgment or self-inflicted condemnation, to stand in the gap and ask for grace for somebody who doesn't deserve it moves the heart and the hand of God. There's something about that that's super powerful. Last two things, super quick. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10. I want you to go to verse 12. This is the last two. 
Daniel chapter 10 and verse 12. Daniel is having an encounter in this moment with an angel. And if you look in verse uh, 10, he says, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This, is, this actually makes me feel super good, by the way. Um, Tracy and I have had a fair amount of angelic encounters in our 30 years of marriage. Um, I'd love to say that I'm a pro when it comes to supernatural experiences and visitations from angels and things like that. I'm going to have to admit to you, I am not a pro. It's weird to me when I go to conferences and somebody will go, you know, I'm sitting in my hotel room there and an angel came and sat on the edge of the bed and we just chatted for a while and he, he was an angel of awakening and he gave me all kinds of things and, he, and then I came to tell you all about it. Yawn. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Every angelic encounter I've ever had has made me tremble, sometimes for hours. I'll tell you one. I'll tell you a good embarrassing one. Tracy and I are in Boston one time. And uh, uh, I'm doing a conference with my friend Alex Morales, the pastor in Austin, Texas now. Alex loves telling this story. And uh, so Alex and Tracy and I, we have an afternoon free. And uh, because I'm a child of the 80s, I've never been to Cheers, and I want to go see it. Okay. So we park at Boston Commons, but we park at the opposite end of the park because we don't know where Cheers is. We get out of the car, and we're going to walk from corner to corner across this massive park. And as we enter into the park, I look, and there's a building over here, and I see a guy sitting uh, in front of the building, and he's got his legs propped up, and he's got a, a styrofoam cup with a chunk ripped out of it. Man, it's distinct. But the thing that really caught my attention is this guy looked like he'd been in a fight. His eye was just swollen black and blue, and his lip was busted and mouth bleeding. And I look over at him, and immediately I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to take some time with this guy, but I'm first going to go get a selfie in front of Cheers. I'd like to just tell you I'm just not as spiritual as maybe I'd like to believe, okay? So should stop and minister to this guy, but, you know, I just, I didn't, okay? I just didn't do it. So Alex and Sarah are going along, and I'm thinking he'll be here when I get back. I go all the way to the other side of the park, and when I get to Cheers, in front of the building sitting next to Cheers is the exact same guy. sitting exactly like he was over there with the same styrofoam cup, the same black eye, and the same busted lip. And suddenly I have this realization, oh, that's an angel. At least I'm pretty sure. I'm like 86% sure, right? <laughs> Here's the way I'm going to test it, though. I get my selfie. We take our picture. We're going to walk back to the car. Here's the way I'm going to test it. If that guy is back there, because there's no way he could have run around us. If that guy is back there, I'll know it's an angel, and I'm going to talk with him, all right? Now, if you ever think, like, if you ever, like, think, I would love to have an angelic encounter because I would have my list of questions. You know, I've got, I got questions, man. I want to know about certain things in the spirit. Give me some knowledge. That's what I was thinking. All the way across Boston Common, I put together a list of questions in my head, and I'm going, I'm not talking to Alex and Tracy about any of this. I'm just walking across Boston Commons thinking to myself, I am... I'm going to, okay, I'm going to ask questions about all kinds of certain things, and, and, and I'm going to get some wisdom from this guy, okay? So I get over there. Sure enough, there he is, same exact guy. And I'm like, ha-ha. So I say to Alex and Tracy, come on. And so we walk over to where this guy is, and I pull some money out of my wallet, out of my pocket, and I, I bend down. I get down on one knee, and I put the money in his little cup, and I look him straight in the eye, and I said, I know who you are. <laughs> this is how I'm going to begin the conversation, Right? Followed by a list of questions, but I know who you are. 
And sure as I'm, I don't like to tell testimonies that I can't prove. In other words, there were witnesses there who saw the same thing I saw. So Alex is standing over my shoulder and Tracy's standing right here. And sure as I'm standing here and my wife's watching online, his black eye goes and totally clears up and heals and his split lip comes together and the blood disappears. And he smiles at me, which freaks me out, right? So suddenly I have no questions. I can't, I can't think of my own name. I don't, all the questions now go out the window and this is what I do. I stand up like I'm in the military. I stand up and turn and walk like this. And, and Alex is behind me and he goes, wow, wow. Did you see that? Where are we going right now? What is happening? Alex and Tracy follow me, and I'm like, I don't know. We got to go. We just got to we, we gotta go. I'm not ready for this. So I'd like to tell you I'm a pro. I'm just not, okay? <laughs> but here's what makes my heart warm, and that is when I read about Daniel, who had a lot of encounters with angels, and he still gets freaked out by them. So I'm like, Daniel, I got you, man. All right. <laughs> said, he's touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, verse 11, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, he said, I stood up trembling. I get that. And this he says, verse 12, the last two things that we got to develop and get this into us. He says, don't be afraid, Daniel. From the first day you set your heart to understand and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. How many of you are interested in answered prayer? I know I am. Here's a key to answered prayer. Fourth thing, Daniel stayed teachable before God. Daniel, as much as he learns, as much as he knows, why does he tremble? Because he's never an expert. He comes before God eternally as a student. Can I tell you, I'll give you an interesting revelation. I, I, think, I think we're going to be learning in heaven. I really do. I think we will always be learning. Why, why do I think this? Because John, the revelator, he is in heaven, standing in the throne room of God. Read the book. He doesn't have a clue as to what in the world's going on. They have to stop the whole play like four times to go, okay, John, look. And explain to him what's happening. This tells me you can literally be in the throne room of God and be like, am I the only one here who doesn't know what's happening right now? <laughs> so I honestly believe, listen, stay a student. If you're like, well, what's the point of even, I heard, I heard years ago, I heard ministers say, when we get to heaven, we'll just automatically know everything. Well, that just sort of kills the incentive to learn anything down here. It's like, what's the point of learning anything if I'm already going to know everything? Well, here's the deal. Inside of you, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit right now, inside of you is the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And his desire, expressed in the Scripture, is to guide you into all truth. In other words, there is one living within you who knows everything. Which means you know everything. You actually have access to all knowledge. You know what we don't have? understanding of everything that we know you may know everything but you may not understand everything you know and i think this is why eternity takes so long because it's going to take us eternity to figure out everything that we have access to in terms of knowledge 
I think we're going to be learning in heaven. We're always going to be students. Even as people made in the image and likeness of God, we learn. We're always gaining information. Here's the fun thing about learning, though. I used to come to God with questions. And I'd be like, God, answer my questions. And God goes, how about I question your answers? And then give you more questions. And so the more time I spend with God, the less I know. I wish you knew me 20 years ago when I knew everything. Now I know so, so much less. And you know what I do a lot now with the Lord? What's going on there? What's, what's up with that? Why is this? Why is, I sound more like a child now than I ever have been. Because in the kingdom of God, that's maturity. In the kingdom of God, maturity looks like childlikeness. Jesus said, unless you're converted and become like a child, you can't even see the kingdom. Get used to asking tons of questions, but don't be surprised if he questions your answers. Why? He's drawing us into the heart of a student, the posture of understanding. And God honored that in Daniel. As many encounters as he had, as much knowledge as he gained, as, as often as he heard the word of the Lord and communed with God, he always set his heart to be a student. And the last one, to walk humbly before God. I figured this much out. The way you walk before men is how you walk before God. And the way you walk before God is how you walk before men. If you walk humbly before God, you walk humbly before men. There's a super thin line between confidence and arrogance. Arrogance won't serve, confidence will. Why? Because you're confident in the fact that your union with God was secured at the cross and you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and he did that. And now it's his identity that ultimately reveals your identity. It's his divine nature that ultimately unveils the truth of who you really are. And now I just let go of every lie that I believe about myself and it may take me years to let go of all of them because some of you have collected quite a few and as God, little by little, peels the lies off of you and you begin to see who you truly are, you realize I'm actually, not just figuratively, actually seated in heavenly places with Christ. In the throne room of God, what's your posture? I just love, and we've had time this morning, I do it, but I won't do it this morning, we don't have time. But I do ministry schools all over the place and I love taking people through a fun exercise where everybody closed their eyes and picture the throne room of God and and picture, you know, how big is it? Is it huge? Is it small? Is it, is it, like, is it like grandpa sitting there? Is he smiling at you? Is he, what does he look like? I mean, what's the throne room like? How big are the walls? What are the floors like? And then the question, here's the big question. Where are you in the throne room? And as people sit there and they have their eyes closed, you'll see people start to respond to this question. Where would I find myself? Just in my own childlike imagination, where would I put myself in the throne room of God? Ask the students, I'll say, tell me, tell me, what are, you, what are you seeing? And people will go, say things like, I'm on my knees. That's a common one. I'm on my face before the throne. I'm as close as I can get. I'm looking around to see who's here and who's not here. I don't know. I'm looking around trying to figure out what's going on in this crowd. Somebody said, I'm standing outside. I feel like I'm outside of a doorway, and the door is right here, and I know the action is right on the other side of this doorway. It's open, and I can hear the sound, but I don't feel worthy to even go in there. Then I'll ask this question. How many of you picture yourself on the throne? And they go, whoa, whoa, don't go there. 
I'm not saying, look, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is where you belong in the throne room. When you realize you've been given that kind of a gift, purely 100% by grace, that what you offer to your own salvation is a big, fat nothing. You suddenly rest in your reconciled union with God and now thank Him for His amazing gift of reconciliation back to the Father. You live in the glory of the new covenant. Not a moment or an ounce or a drop of pride can find its way in you because that pride in your own works has now been replaced with gratitude purely for the finished work of the cross of Christ, which alone saved us. And from that posture, that's why we tremble in the presence of an almighty God, even under a new covenant. We can boldly approach the throne, not with arrogance, but with confidence, with a confidence that trembles at his goodness. Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 3 gives two last days verses no end-time preachers ever preach about. I always wondered why. I'll just combine the two. It says, in the last days, I will pour out compassion on people who haven't earned it. And I will say to those people, you are my people. And they will respond and say, you are my God. Hosea 3, 5. And a nation will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. Not a trembling fear that makes you run away scared of punishment, but a trembling because you've tasted and you've seen how good he is. And you're so good, you want more. And so what are you doing? You're actually leaning into it, falling into it, going, this might kill me, but what a way to go. <laughs> Trembling at the goodness of God. That's humility. And that's what Daniel is doing here. He's not scared that God's going to drop the hammer on him. Daniel has this absolute awe and reverence, and he's tasted of the goodness of the Lord. And he's trembling his way into more. Five things Daniel did. He walked without compromise to the word of the Lord. He developed supernatural compassion for wicked people, even wicked kings. Third thing he did is he asked for grace for himself and for his nation when they didn't deserve it. Fourth thing he did is he determined in his heart to be a student all the days of his life. And the last thing, he walks with trembling humility before an almighty God. And I feel like as the body of Christ, we've got to grab a hold of these things. Well, what's the point, Bill? Why does it even matter? I'll give you one last thing. This is why it matters. 400 years later, in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ is born. Did you know that Daniel knew that it was going to happen? He had three really key pieces of information. I, he had read Isaiah, said, a, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. To call his name Emmanuel. Save people from their sins. He realized how he was coming. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Micah said, out of you, Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, will come your king. Now he knows where. What he doesn't know is when. Until he gets the vision of his 70 weeks. 
And he gets this vision and puts the timeline together and would have passed down, hey, within the next 490 years, the Messiah is going to be born to a virgin in Bethlehem. Who does he pass that down to? The disciples whose lives he saved. Who were they? Wise men and magicians. 400 years later, Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. Not a single Jewish prophet caught it. But you know who did? Wise men from the east. We call them magi. It's a Persian word from where we get magicians. Who were they? They were descendants of the disciples of Daniel, who for four centuries held on to the promise of the coming Messiah. (laughs) They deliver wealth. Where do they get wealth? Passed down to them, more than likely from Daniel. Who else would he have given it to? He had no wife. He had no children. Matter of fact, say, is this just speculation? No, you can go to where Daniel's buried, actually. It's in Iran, a city in Iran called Susa. And in Susa, there's a shrine to Daniel. And in the shrine to Daniel, you can actually find people who are descendants of there who actually tell you the story of the Magi from that part of the world who heard the word of the Lord about the coming of the Messiah from Daniel and actually sent a a, a caravan of kings, Magi, across the desert to, to literally stand before a stable. They weren't put off by the stable or the tiny little family. They were so driven by the supernatural call of God on their life and the mission that they had that they literally kneel down in front of a baby and a feeding trough and pass off enough wealth to get them out of that country and get them to Egypt. Say, how do we know they even had a relationship with God? Because the Lord appears to them in a dream that night, tells them to go home another way, and they obey. They're literally being led by the Spirit of God. Did that just happen? No, it was imparted to them by one guy, listen to this, who could look past the burning down of the temple of stone in Jerusalem and look into the future at the incarnation of the temple of flesh, the Son of God coming to earth and literally sow a gift into that building of that temple of that kingdom because that's the one that matters because temples of stone and wood and steel will pass away, but the kingdom of God remains eternal and that alone is worth everything. So, Lord, we thank you today for the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We thank you today for the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. We thank you today for the coming of the king into us, that the king has come to us. God, we thank you for filling us today with your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, if there's any here today who don't know you, may today be the day they say, Jesus, take my life. I'm tired of the way I've been living. You can have my life. Give me yours. I receive your grace by faith. And right now, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let the new wine, the fresh oil of the Holy Spirit pour over us. God, let the new wine, the fresh oil of the Holy Spirit pour over this house today. God, I just call the vineyard and grants grants past blessed of the Lord. 
I call the vineyard a house filled overflowing with the intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit that will shift the atmosphere, bringing healing to bodies, minds, spirits, breaking off addiction as was declared earlier, healing marriages, restoring covenants. Thank you, Jesus, that this community is blessed of you. Send the rain of your presence afresh on it again. In Jesus' name, and everyone say, amen. amen.